Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. Uh, let me say to our church family how incredibly grateful I am for you, um, how you serve the Lord uh, so uh, faithfully and consistently, and uh, what that meant for us on Easter Sunday as uh, we welcomed over 1,600 people on our campus, uh, more than ever in the 112-year-old uh, history of this church. Uh, thank you so much. If you are here with us today and you were with us last Sunday on Easter for the first time or the first time in a long time, I want you to know that you are a priority to us. And myself personally or one of our other pastors, we'd love to talk with you uh, and hear what God is doing in your life and see how we can help you um, Take the steps of following Jesus. If you're uh, visiting with us, whether uh, that's the first time today or you've been coming and you haven't connected with us, we would love to do that. Stop by one of the welcome areas if you're with us on campus when you make your way off campus or uh, whether you're in person or online, you can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week. Let me also encourage you uh, to take steps to get plugged into a life group. That is where church really happens where people are trying to learn the ways of Jesus together and care for each other. And so we have groups that meet on Sunday mornings, that meet on Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, Thursday evenings. We'd love for you to find a group where you belong and can become who God's created you to be. Uh, one more thing, uh, next Saturday is our serve day. Uh, it's a great opportunity we have as a church family to uh, serve the community. Uh, we have over 200 people signed up. We would love to see uh, even more than that. There are a lot of opportunities to serve and these are uh, not just uh, days uh, or things we're doing one time, but they're things that we hope to continually do um, and hopefully even start some new partnerships in serving the community. And so I'd encourage you uh, to sign up for serve day. Uh, we are beginning... Uh, our journey through the book of Ephesians. You can go ahead and find your place in Ephesians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to help you uh, get one if you reach out to us. Over the next four weeks, we are going to be talking about the idea of purpose as we examine the first part of Ephesians. Purpose is a word uh, that carries a lot of weight to it. It's one of the things that are searched the most on the internet. There are... Um, Perhaps you would call it destiny, significance, meaning, but this is something that is very relevant to many people. Movies are made about purpose and meaning. Books are written about purpose and meaning. Articles are continually turned out about this topic, and social media platforms and influencer accounts are built around something or a part of this. We were not made to live without a destiny. We were made to be sustained by a meaningful, purposeful future. We were made to be strengthened each day by this confidence that no matter what is happening in our lives today, whether it be mundane or ordinary, is really a significant step towards something great and good and beautiful tomorrow. Paul's letter begins with an exhortation to remember and understand the true nature of the reason for ex our existence. Let's read it and then walk through it and let it speak to us this morning. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you pray with me. Father, as I hear the news from some of my brothers and sisters this morning of 30 people being slaughtered in Africa for their faith, I'm confronted with the reality that these glorious words will bore people in this room today. God, no matter how impressive or articulate I try to be, for these words to take root in the hearts of those who are listening to me this morning has to be a work of your Holy Spirit. And God, I believe that you are powerful as we've seen and heard this morning and sang about this morning. And so I ask for that power to be with us now. God, to help us to see who you are maybe for the first time, to desire to grow in grace or to give our lives out as an offering in new and fresh ways. God, may you be exalted and no one else right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The phrase in Ephesus is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have of this letter. So many scholars have concluded that it was intended to be circulated, but it arrived in Ephesus first since Paul had such a close connection to the believers there. Having spent two years there, according to Acts chapter 19. Since the letter is not very personal, some have questioned the reliability of Paul's authorship. However, there is much evidence to the early church's acceptance of Paul as the author. This all supports that this was not a letter written only to the Ephesians, but originating with the Ephesians, and then meant to be circulated, which is really true of all books of the Bible, but distinctively here, there is less that is contextual in terms of application. In the book of, uh, Cor to the Corinthians, there's a lot that is contextual that is written, but here there's really not much of that. We should understand, though, that Ephesus was a city of around 50,000 people full of Greek idolatry, specifically devoted to Artemis. Ephesus actually isn't a civilized uh, place anymore and is only evident in ruins today. But it is important to understand that God had moved in Ephesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The riots, Acts 19 tell us about, uh, happened because of the amount of conversions. That people trusting in Jesus and so a city, a place where there was this great devotion to Artemis, a great business and industry devoted to Artemis actually began to fall on its head to turn upside down and people were getting rid of idols and their spell books. In the 90s, we burned our Coolio CDs and our DMX CDs. They got rid of their spell books and their idols. If you're under 25, a CD was this round disc and you put it inside something and it played music. I just wanna know whether it was Nirvana or Snoop, how many of you ended up buying those CDs again? Don't raise your hand. In addition to people making money off of the statues, tourism to Artemis' temple was huge. So you've got hotels that are set up there, restaurant owners uh, that are set up there, stands where people sell little bumper stickers that say, Artemis is my co-pilot. I'll let you do the historical fact-checking about all this on your own. And God transforms the city to where people were out of jobs because people weren't worshiping Artemis anymore. They were worshiping the risen Jesus. 
And now Paul is writing them from prison to encourage them and others. After greeting them, Paul begins with one long sentence in verses 3 through 14, which theologians love and English teachers hate. And the emphasis of what he writes here in this text is in Christ. Paul says in Christ or in him 164 times in all of his letters that are in the Bible. He says it at least 28 times in his letter to the Ephesians and seven times just in these 10 verses. And today what we are talking about is who you are in Christ. I want to list five things about who we are in Christ according to this text Five things that help you understand your purpose, help you understand your identity, help you understand meaning, help you understand significance. The first of those five things is that we are faithful in Christ. Verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. When you read the word faithful, you should think full of faith. That means that there is evidence of faith, there is fruit of faith. He also calls them saints, which is the Greek word hagios, which means holy ones. Now, when you think of saints, you probably think of dead people with big hats that hold up a peace sign. You think of them like that because of Catholic sainthood. Catholic sainthood was something that originated to honor those who were martyred for their faith. It's not a bad thing, but it got out of whack. And it began to really get out of whack, and so they came up with rules to define who was a saint. Those rules have actually evolved over time, and even Pope Francis, the current pope, actually came out with a new list of rules for what would classify someone as a saint. His rules are as follows. The individual must freely and voluntarily offer their life in the face of a certain and soon-to-come death. There must be a close relation between the offering of their life and the premature death of the one who offers it. The person must show Christian virtues, at least to an ordinary extent, before and after offering their life. They must have a reputation of holiness, at least after their death. Influential Catholic priest James Martin says that there has to be a group that is devoted to you for you to become a saint. They must have performed a miracle. This is a major difference from the martyrdom category, which does not require a miracle. They used to, if you wanted to be a saint, have to perform a miracle after death. And so a miracle that happened had to be attributed to prayers to you or your appearance. And so if all these things are found to be true, they investigate. Then it goes up to the bishop and all the way up to the Vatican. And then you are a saint. And churches and schools and festivals can be named after you. And loosely religious people can get drunk on your birthday. This is where a lot of people get their idea of what a saint is. Now, what does the Bible say that it takes to be a saint? What does the Bible say that you need to do to be a saint? Let me ask you this question. Are you in Christ? Then you are a saint. If you are in Christ, then you are faithful in Christ Jesus. You are set apart. Paul's point is that there is not a hierarchy in the kingdom of God. If there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God, it is Jesus and all of us, no matter how big the hat. We are all to adore and worship King Jesus, and if we find ourselves in Christ, we are declared faithful by God. 
Are you struggling to feel like you are faithful? Find yourself in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are faithful, you are a saint. The second thing that this text shows us about who we are in Christ is that we are blessed. Verse three says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is not talking about earthly blessings here. Surely we experience earthly blessings in our life. Perhaps we experience financial blessings. Maybe we experience the blessings of our labor, the fruit of our labor, results from whatever it is we're doing. Maybe we experience fulfillment in our relationships. Maybe we just get these great experiences in life. And these things can actually be a means of common grace. Common grace is something that God freely bestows on anyone. So non-believers experience the common grace of God. The scripture tells us that God is able to make it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. So we can experience an earthly blessing. As a Christian, we might specifically experience an earthly blessing because God chose to bless us as a believer to help us to see his goodness or something like that. But what Paul is talking about here are the blessings in the heavenly places, like the grace and peace that he mentions in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, like the grace that saves us, like the peace that sustains us. These are things the world cannot give us. And in Christ, even in death, we experience God's blessing. The scariest thing, the worst thing is not dying, it is dying not in Christ. Notice again that the text tells us that he has blessed us in Christ. People are searching for the blessings of God. People want to live the blessed life. Maybe that is you. Maybe that is why you are here today. Are you searching for blessings? Find yourself in Christ. In Christ, you are blessed with the blessings in the heavenly places. The third thing our text tells us that we are in Christ is chosen. Verse four says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, when I talk about this, there's a tension that I feel here. It's a tension that I feel because I know where people come from when we talk about these verses and this issue. So that's why I'm giving a little bit more length to this specific thing and maybe why my tone and cadence changes even just a little bit. And I'll be honest with you, I'm gonna confess with you, knowing that how some people are about this, even in this church, threatened to rob me of the joy of preaching these verses. But there is so much joy in these verses of scripture, breathed out by God for us. So let me just explain the text, because that's what I want to be central, and then I will address some of that tension. So looking at this verse, it tells us someone chose. Who does it tell us chose? God, as he chose. This phrase means he made a choice. Who did he choose? Us. This choosing here is talking about 
a group. Paul is writing to the believers, and he's saying God has chosen us. Now, there's this idea of corporate election in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it is the church. We come to understand, if we read the Bible, that everyone who belonged to the physical nation of Israel wasn't actually of the Israel of God, and everyone who claims membership in a church isn't actually a part of God's church. But there are believers who are the church, and God chose them. When did he choose them? Before the foundation of the world. One of the distinctions in scripture is God's foreknowledge and preordination. The text tells us in Romans 9 that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he calls. Those he called, he saved. Those he saved, he glorified. So God knows and God works things in a way that we would worship him and we would see his glory. Why did he choose that we should be holy and blameless before him? Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people to be set apart and perfect before him. This is a theme that is echoed throughout the entire Bible. One of those such parallels is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. It says, now may our God and our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The narrative of all of the scripture is that God purposes to bring a people to completion, to holiness, to blamelessness before him so that his glory and his riches would be on display in them. God has chosen to have a people for himself for eternity, for them to be transformed to his likeness. Now, there are a lot of illustrations and analogies used to describe this. But the best illustration, the best analogy that God wants us to use is right there in his word. It's adoption. Ephesians chapter one, verse five says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Adoption is the act of bringing someone who is not in the family into the family. In the Greek and in the English, it carries with it legal connotations where rights are bestowed upon the one who is adopted as if they are just a part of the family. And so they have the same rights that someone who is biologically a part of the family. Now notice what he says is he says adoption to himself. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people to be set apart and perfect before him. And, and his desire to do this was out of love. It says, if you look at verse four and then going on, in love, he predestined us for adoption. What we need to understand is this, adoption is the clearest earthly picture of the gospel. I do not mean that it is the only picture of the gospel, but even when we think about other earthly relationships, we need to understand that God says to view them through the lens of the gospel. So like when he's talking about marriage, he says there's marriage, and you need to use your marriage to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. But here with adoption, he says, let me explain what the gospel is like. It's like adoption. So our adoption 
was a part of God's plan. It was his idea. It was his purpose. It was not an afterthought. God did not wake up one day to be surprised against his plan and knowledge that we had sinned and say, ah, I gotta come up with a backup plan of adopting us into his family. No, Paul says that he predestined this. He planned to adopt us to himself through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Now, if you've been a church person for a long time, then you know the study of this doctrine can become a divisive issue. The study of these verses can become a divisive issue. Let me just tell you that if you're new to the faith, you will undoubtedly come across someone who says to you, either, if you don't think God has chosen who will and who will not, you are brainless. Or they'll say, if you think God knows who will and who isn't, then you are heartless. I will likely get an email saying both of those things tomorrow. So I just want to say a few things about this issue. This is a mini topical sermon here. I just want to say five things about this issue, about these verses, about what this is dealing with. Number one, study of this is good. Study of this is good. Anytime we are diving and digging in the scriptures to understand more of who God is and who we are in relation to God, that is good. When people say, I don't really study theology, I just follow Jesus, I'm like, do you know who Jesus is? Because Jesus wants to be understood as who he has expressed himself, not who you just naturally think he is. God wants to be known for who he is, and so study of God centered in his word is good. It's good to dig into this stuff. Secondly, God knows. If you walk away from the Bible and don't recognize that God knows, you have walked into heresy. It is blasphemous to say that God doesn't know or that God isn't in control. There's a doctrine out there called open theism. It's this idea that God doesn't know what we're going to do, and God, to try to make him look good, is a skillful uh, like chess player who's orchestrating things in a way, even though he can't control how things would be, and that is heretical. God knows everything, and God is in control. Third, there is mystery to it. There is mystery to it. There are people who line up on one side of what they would call this issue theologically, and there are people who line up on the other side of this theologically, and I get it. And I encourage you, just stay humble and keep leaning into the text. And I want you to know that we can all believe in the gospel and vary in that here. If you teach in our church, don't make it a banner. Don't make it an agenda. That will be a problem. I'm not saying you can't dissect these things and share your opinions with people here and there, but when we get together to study the word, make the word central, not man-made theologies, even if they're good man-made theologies. Make the word central, but also respect there's some mystery here. You know, Naaman Keithy, who was the editor for the Review and Expositor, wrote in 1979 that we ought not to read into such statements concerning election ideas that are not intended, such as the concept that God has predetermined that some men should reject him. That is not explicitly stated in Scripture. 
Rather, election confirms positively that salvation comes as a result of a divine plan. And I would just say to you that some people get to this place where they think, I've, I, I got it, right? Like I figured it out. And, and we read something like this passage and we read, study on this passage and we think, wow, that is really deep. And what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to think, wow, now I understand this and I can articulate this and I'm really deep. Here's what I would say to you. You are like a 10-year-old boy who walks out into the ocean to where his feet can no longer touch and thinks, wow, I am so deep. At a depth of seven foot, when the ocean just a little bit further extends to a depth of miles. Francis Chan says that what we are like when we think we understand God is we are like somebody who puts their hands in the ocean, looks at the water that's in our hands and thinks, I understand everything there is about God when God is as vast as the ocean. And we will spend all of eternity learning new things about the greatness and the goodness of our God because he is so vast beyond all measure. He's so vast beyond all measure. Number four, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are fully reconciled. I can't articulate it, but if you are a Christian, it is because God chose you. And if you're not, it is because you have chosen to reject God. These are both true. The Lord knows everything that would ever happen and still created everything we see. And the Lord is not willing that any should repent, any should perish, but that we should come to repentance. Don't mix those two words up there. The Bible clearly speaks to the idea of the elect, but the Bible clearly speaks to the message of evangelism. And as far as I am concerned, the gospel is available to all. I've said, I see that there are God's elect and he keeps electing people I nominate. So I'm going to keep proclaiming the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and trust in him. Number five, last point of the mini sermon, not of the whole sermon. Our response is worship. God did this in love. This is the purpose of, of his will. When the Bible tells us that he predestined us, you need to understand that that Greek word is only used to refer to two things. It's used to refer to our predestination and it's used to refer to the predestination of Christ on the cross. I want you to think about something. God reserves this word to say Christ is going to go to the cross and I am going to save you. What a glorious thought that God would care for us that much. Before the world was ever established, God knew you and he loved you. There has never been a time in eternity when God did not know you and did not love you. For as long as God has been in existence from eternity past, he has known about you, he has cherished you and planned to redeem you and save you. And so our response to this should be, why me? I do not deserve this, God. And it should lead to this great gratitude for who he has declared me to be 
in Christ, and it should result to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I think some of our failure to understand God and therefore our purpose is that we fail to see it is all about his glory. In Psalm 23, verse four, which people quote about their life, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Until you understand this, that God's glory is at the center of everything, nothing that God does will really make sense to you. I remember having a discussion about theology and when I was in my 20s, and I can remember this as clear as day. I was on the phone with somebody who was not telling me what they believed, but just telling me some things they were pondering as they understood the scriptures. And we got onto the topic of the man who would be on the deserted island who never heard the gospel. Fast forward, and my master's work actually wrote a paper on those who've never heard of the gospel. But I remember in that moment, I was on the phone with Christy, and she was telling me things. And I said to her, and I can remember myself saying this, if that's who God is, I don't want to serve him. And in God's grace, the minute I said that, I realized, whoa, who am I to say that? Now what I would say to you is when I come across scripture and I don't like it, I assume that I am wrong and not a holy God. Some of you in here, you still think you're superior to God. And when you come across his words, you say, I'm not gonna serve him. You have not encountered his greatness and his holiness and his kindness towards you. And if we have been adopted by God, then our adoption by God should lead us to humility. And I would say to you this morning that if you're feeling the weight and the struggle to feel important and significant, find yourself in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are chosen. Number four, back to the main sermon. We are redeemed in Christ. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption is an important word in Christianity. It actually means ransomed. It, it carries with it the language of someone whose actions have led them into debt to where in that day they had to pay back their debt through slavery. And the only way out was that debt being paid back. This is what Jesus has done for you. Your way, your sin has created a debt before a holy God and his blood is the payment of that debt. And our trespasses are forgiven, the text tells us. That's significant. Sin could be something that we do wrong, but we just do it wrong because it's in our nature. But a trespass is something we do wrong and we know that we are doing wrong. And he has forgiven us of our trespasses against him. Your trespasses have been forgiven. You have been ransomed. Your record of debt has been erased. According to the riches of his grace, we are not redeemed or forgiven according to our heritage or our skill set or our works 
or our acceptance by others, we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul has God's relationship with Israel in mind for so much of what he is saying to us here. And I think it's important to understand the nature of the election of the Israelites. I'm gonna glance at Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six through 11. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six through 11, God says this to Israel, for you are a holy people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God says, I didn't save you because you deserve it over other people. I saved you and chose you because I love you. And so obey me. Well, guess what? Just turn the page and you find out they don't. Deuteronomy 9 verse 6 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So our adoption is not based on us being worthy or attractive. It's based on the rich grace of God planned before the foundation of the world, brought to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. My wife and I, our family, we've been foster, a foster family for seven years. I remember when we began the story of um, adoption, I remember talking to one, some of my friends about it. One of my friends who wasn't a Christian said, oh, I could never do that. He said, however, you know, I, I might go to one of those children's homes and have all the kids like do this athletic competition and adopt the one that wins in hopes that they might be able to take care of me when I'm old. He was kind of joking, kind of. And I remember hearing stories, this doesn't happen anymore, but uh, of ages ago when people would actually walk into orphanages in other countries and they would look at the children based on their looks and their demeanor and they would pick the one who they liked the most. Ironically, a lot of times they would pick the one that cried the least and that baby had just learned not to cry and there would be a lot of trauma. They didn't know what they were getting into. This is not Christian adoption. Let me just share three quick things about Christian adoption. Another mini sermon. We adopt for God's glory. We do not adopt for our glory. We do not adopt for Instagram pictures. We do not adopt so that people would say, oh, that's so good of you, I could never do that. And we think, yeah, I guess I am better than you. We don't adopt to complete the view of we have a family. We also don't adopt for the glory of that child. Thinking by bringing them into our family, now they will really understand a level of living that they didn't have. 
Our desire is not to take a low view of self and replace it with a high view of self. Our desire is to bring someone into our home who may not have ever had a high view of God and give them a high view of God. We adopt, and any relationship we have is for God's glory. Secondly, we adopt in mercy and justice. When we adopt, the child passes no test. He or she is loved freely without meeting conditions. We don't base our choice on what we see. We love because we have been loved. And this is mercy. And we realize that that is to be shown to them regardless of how they perform. And then thirdly, we adopt with sacrifice. I sat in a room on this church campus on Wednesday night with several foster and adoptive families. And I was moved to tears just to hear the way the gospel has been and is working in the lives of these families and their stories. But also, some of their stories are hard. And I have text and I have emails from parents describing the agony of adoptions that did not work or that almost didn't work. I've had lengthy, tear-filled conversations with parents whose children are struggling with emotional and mental and physical challenges. Of course, this can happen with our biological children. It's not unique to adoption. It does happen. But I want all of those who are considering adoption to be aware of the likelihood of this kind of difficulty. We need to adopt with our eyes wide open. This will bring pain. This may bring tragedy. But for those of us who move forward in adoption, we embrace it. And if we are faithful, it will certainly bring joy. Because the goal is the glory of God through this work. I realize in this room there are many adopted children. You may be grown, you may still be a child. Let me help you understand something. Whether they are aware of it or not, the act of adoption by your parents is this very clear picture of the identity that all of us have. In fact, I would say to you, by God's grace, you might have an easier time understanding what it means to be saved than someone who grows up in a less traumatic situation. In our home, there is a piece of art that someone gave us when we adopted our son a few years ago, and it says, in my, fa my favorite book, says that we are all adopted. That is the message of the gospel, that we have strayed from our design, and we have orphaned ourselves because of our sin, and God has saw fit to bring us into his family. By his grace, according to the riches of his grace. This past Tuesday, on our behalf, an attorney petitioned the court for the adoption of the sweet little girl who's lived with us for two and a half years. Very soon, she will legally become my daughter. But what I noticed when I looked over that petition, it has actually had very little to do with her. And why she was worthy to be adopted. But it was all about us. It was about our income, our character, our references, and who we are. You see, what's going before a judge is this adoption ought to happen, not based on her, but based on the Rosses and who they are.
understand this. Your adoption by God is not based on you. It is according to the riches of his grace. You are his because of who he is. What great joy and security that brings us, which he lavished upon us, verse 8 says, in all wisdom and insight. Are you struggling to find yourself worthy? Find yourself in Christ. In Christ, you are redeemed. All right, I got one more point. I'll go fast. If you don't want to hear it, you can leave. Number five, (laughs) enlightened. He says, verse 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you are searching for meaning and destiny, when you find yourself in Christ, you begin to understand God's plan. I don't mean you understand everything about God's plan, but you understand the thing. In the Greco-Roman world, there were secret circles of knowledge in their cults. The Bible tells us God has made known to all of us what he wants to be known. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. This was the purpose that was set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to him. We may not know all the things about our destiny, but we know the thing. And we can grow in the knowledge that life is not about being the master of many things. It is being mastered by the greatest thing. Are you struggling this morning to feel enlightened like you know why you're here and what your purpose is and who you are? Find yourself in Christ. God will make known to you the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We were not made to live without a destiny. But we need to understand that our destiny is in Christ. And when we talk about meaning and purpose, it must be centered around what God has done. I don't mean that you find your destiny in Christ I mean that you find yourself in Christ and you realize that he is your destiny. In your mind, these two things coexist. I'm not that important and I am so significant and in Christ they're reconciled. We have to look past ourselves to see how great God is and how great God is towards us in redeeming us by his blood. And this morning you're searching You're told to search for your identity and your purpose and your significance in this world. When you're a little kid, your parents hope you'll be a child prodigy in sports or music or something like that. When they realize that's not true, they start asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) And everything revolves around what are you going to be? Where are you going to go to college? That's your identity. That's your career, whether it's the military or whatever. And so many people struggle when they lose their career because that's what their identity was in. But it's, it's preached to us. And then when we find that, Now it's time to find a family. And we gotta find our spouse who we're gonna do life with. There's your meaning, there's your significance. And if you can't find that and you go past 28, you start to feel like, is there something wrong with me? And then, then we gotta get security and we gotta get success with that person. And then it's not enough, we have to have children and our, our value and our significance is in having our children. And then we gotta have the experiences that we need to have in life. And look what you're missing out on. You better do this before you retire. You better do this before you get too old. And now we have social media and there are, this is monetized. 
And it's preached to you by people who are making a living off this gospel of this should be your identity, or at least this should be a part of your identity. And it's exhausting. Find yourself in Christ. Find yourself in Christ that God, in love, predestined you for adoption to him as a son, as a daughter, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed you in the beloved. That's the answer. And it's so much greater than any of these things can give you. I remember my friend, when we were in our 20s, he was an entrepreneur. And worship team, y'all can, y'all can come up and get ready. Um, we're pressed for time. So, um, And I remember... He had this business plan, right? But he wanted to grow his business. He wanted to grow up faster. So he knew this guy who had some means and he wanted to go to him and present this business plan and he did it and he took it to him. And so the next time I saw him, I asked, I said, well, how did it go? He said, well, he didn't accept my business plan. Okay, so I'm like, so bad. He's like, no, not necessarily. He said to me that my plan didn't need him. When he invests, he invests so that what happens in his investment multiplies greatly. And I had everything figured out that I could do on my own. And he said, you know what? I want you to come back next week and I'll give you the plan. And I'm gonna make an investment in you because I see who you are and what you can do. And it's gonna be beyond everything you understood. And when I'm saying this, I'm not saying that God's gonna give you earthly blessings beyond what you imagined. He might. But what I'm saying to you is when you look to God to write the plan for significance and purpose and meaning and you look past yourself, it is far greater than anything you could ever do. And he gets the glory from it. And it is where we should find ourselves. So whether that's today and you've thought of righteousness and salvation as something on your own terms and you need to go to God and you need to say, you've bought me through the blood of Jesus. Or that you need to start growing in him and and realizing he's the one who directs and guides your steps. Or you just need to say, God, it's all on the table. Use my life for your glory through others. Let him rule and reign. Because he is the one who can do far greater than we could ever imagine. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the riches of your grace riches that we will only get a glimpse of right now and in this life and we will treasure for all of eternity. Help us not to walk away without a great realization for who we are in you. We are blessed. We are chosen. We are redeemed. God, we are so much more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.